All right. Today, um, we're going to continue uh, in the book of James. So if you'd like to turn to James 1, we'll primarily be focusing on uh, James 1, 9 through 11 today. But we want to, of course, put that in the context of the first chapter of James. So just kind of a refresher of background, and then I'd like to spend a little bit of time um, going into a, some additional context of James uh, that will help, help us in our particular passage today. So when is James happening? Uh, we know that James is the bishop or the leader of the church in Jerusalem a church that is made up of Jewish believers primarily, um, and right there in the seat of uh, the Holy Land. The book of James, uh, he is the bishop of Jerusalem for 20 years, uh, from 42 AD to 62 AD when he is martyred. So for 20 years, this man sits in the very seat of, um, of the capital of the Holy Land and a lot of social situations that are very challenging. So if it weren't challenging enough, the environment is that of Roman rule and occupation. We see that in the life of Jesus and, uh, of course, in the culmination coming to his crucifixion. We see the oppression of Rome because all the government is towards the governor, uh, Pontius Pilate, at that point. And that's what Rome did. It installed procurators for this region or allowed puppet kings like the Herods. Um, the king, if you will call him that of this time, is Agrippa II, which is in the line of the Jewish kings of this time. So even though there is a king of Israel, um, he is essentially a puppet and has to be beholden to all that Rome has. Um, additionally, James is sitting at a time and space where a revolt is coming against that Roman oppression. In AD 66, there's what's called the Great Revolt, and that is the Jewish people standing up against the Roman, uh, Roman oppression. That does not go well, right? We know what happens in AD 70. Rome comes in, sacks Jerusalem, and destroys the temple. And AD 70 is very... Um, important for us to remember is that's a very significant event on the timeline. Specifically, what was the social environment of the book of James? Because that plays into the rich and poor that we're going to read about today. The environment of the time had a big gap between the haves and have-nots. That's something that's existed for eons, and it was certainly the case here uh, in the book of James. Specifically, there was a group of rich, wealthy landowners who would go in, buy up all the land, 
and then force the farmers to farm for them where they got most of the proceeds and the farmers did most of the work. So there was kind of this oppressive situation um, for those, especially those for James' primary background or primary audience. Do you remember what the primary audience of James was in verse 1? One, one. It's those that are scattered abroad, right? To the diaspora of those Jewish believers that were abroad. Specifically, during the course of the epistle of James, a lot of sources have that these were specific churches of Jewish believers that he was writing to. Um, Likely, these were churches in Syria and Asia Minor. And the reason that we get those hints or read between the lines here on that background is because in other books like Galatians uh, chapter 2, it talks about James sending men to Antioch, right? So it's uh, conceivable that James is sending these letters this one in particular, two specific churches. But in general, this book is structured to have 12 sort of short little sermons that all have three very common topics. He often uses pictures of nature and analogies. If you remember in the, la- the last time I spoke, uh, he had an analogy of waves tossed in the sea, uh, that that's what the double-minded man was like. Well, today we will see another one of those. And also James is heavily influenced by two very important sources. One is the teachings of Jesus. This is the Lord's brother who rejected him until the resurrection and then became a believer but he becomes very close to the teachings of Jesus, specifically the Sermon on the Mount and different different accounts of Jesus' teaching. So he echoes a lot of the direct teachings of Jesus in a practical way. And the other source that we see uh, James have is much of the wisdom, the Jewish wisdom of the time, specifically that in the book of Proverbs. Uh, that we still still read. So there's a lot of influence that speaks to James' uh, Jewish background. And frankly, he is very pious towards the law. He's known for his piety. He's known for specifically taking the vow of a Nazarite and following in the purity of a Nazarite. So James is very pious. And so his letter, you add up all of these things, and his letter speaks in a very practical way to share the teachings of Jesus to the new burgeoning church, especially to those believers that have been spread abroad, that probably what happens to us when we get spread from our homeland we, we lose our spiritual moorings, right? 
We might be challenged to find that foundation again in a group of like-minded believers. And, you know, uh, in my personal life, whenever we have moved to a new spot, one of the first assignments is to find a new church, right? To be a part of. And so you can put the diaspora into that context of trying to find the spiritual moorings again. Um, so what's really beautiful about James is you contextualize all of that. And he's speaking directly towards the needs of the believers that he knows. And he knows the case of, um, specifically some items about the haves and the have nots that may help us also in this passage is that the rich uh, spoke about their land ownership, but there's a whole different set of things that they have available to them versus those with little means. The rich may have prominence and may be some recognizable. Um, there's even a merchant class that is in the church at Jerusalem where James is ministering. Um, then the poor, and the rich also have huge homes. You know, all of those times in the, the New Testament when they're talking about going and sleeping on a roof or being on a roof and having dinner or all of those different uh, references that's a rich person thing. Okay. That's a, that is what the rich people's homes were composed of. The more of the poor class or the working class homes were really nothing more than a glorified hut. Right. Um, and so there's a great big difference between those things. You know, the, the poor often were going to be working for the rich. Uh, I can kind of relate to that as well in the, in the, the background of what, where I have worked and what I have done, especially in my hometown of Newland, North Carolina. Um, there are the resorts and there are the people that have money to buy multi-million dollar homes. And then there are the locals, <laughs> Uh, and we're the we're the servant class that uh, really are in the service industry and there for tourism, and that's the way that most people make a living there. So all of that to come to today's passage um, and to to think about that background as we're going into James here. So let's read together through the first a few parts of James. We're going to start with verse one, but we're, and we're going to read through uh, verse 11. So James one, starting with verse one, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy. My, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask it of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers in the grass. And its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So we see a divergence here. We see instructions that James has for those that are of humble circumstances and those that are wealthy. When we, when we read the book of James, this first set of 11 verses introduces themes that will be throughout the rest of the book. So look at what he has built upon, keeping in mind the social situations that I outlined. So in this oppressive government from Rome, in this oppressive situation for the poor where they're working and most of the proceeds going to the rich, James talks about trials and he talks about having endurance and he talks about being complete and wanting nothing and lacking nothing. Then he contrasts and says, but if you lack wisdom on how to stand up under trials, you pray. And what we looked at last time is that wisdom coming from God, um, him using the means of prayer to make us be aligned to him and to the wisdom that he would impart upon us. And now we talk about a specific situation and kind of harken back to why this whole passage and why James would talk about these trials and enduring and standing up under them. Um, so in the context, James has the main idea that trials produce growth in the believer, that wisdom is imparted to the believer freely from God when we ask him in prayer. And these trials and tribulations are going to be leveling across across uh, class. If you're rich, you still have trials and particular challenges. If you're poor, you still have particular challenges and temptations. And James is speaking towards that. So when we read the other chapters of James, we're going to see different cases and different sort of little sermons or homilies that he puts together in the book that relate to these three themes. 
um, to trials, to treating someone different if they're rich, to treating someone differently if they're poor. And the Christian instruction on what we're to do in those cases. So let's dig into the verses and break apart the language a little bit, because in um, maybe some of the language might sound a little strange to us. Um, For instance, ESV renders um, the word boast. NASB renders it glory. Um, And KJV renders it rejoice. Um, Boasting sounds prideful, right? That's kind of makes us scratch our head a little bit, maybe. Um, Boasting, wow, okay. That doesn't sound very humble of us as Christians. Um, But it's a good rendering in that, and we'll see in the original language where other places that this is used. But I tried to highlight here in the different versions that are most common to this congregation, right? I hear most of us use either KJV, ESV, or NASB, and that seems to be, for us, uh, our sort of preferred preferred versions. Um, There are others that we may use from time to time or understand some of the original languages. But um, if we look, the first term here that we need to kind of examine is brother. Highlighted blue here. So James says, but the brother of humble circumstances. What does the term brother indicate about the people that he's speaking to. They're believers. So James is speaking to believers um, when he says brothers. Brothers and sisters implied of humble circumstances. These humble circumstances and the Greek underneath that word Um, are both the obvious, which is poor materially, okay, the class of being poor or working class, Um, but it also has a connotation of being of really no reputation in the world, right? As the world sees it, you're really of little importance, right? So many of us can relate to that. Um, I don't think that I've ever been recognized walking through an airport and and stopped for somebody to get my autograph. I don't know about y'all, but that's not happened. So (laughs) not yet. There's always time, right, Daniel? Um, But these people of humble circumstances are those that aren't necessarily big names and that don't have a lot of material means. Um, Let's talk about boasting and let's talk about kind of the the Greek there and look at the other passages where the same word is used. So in the three different versions that I laid out, it's either glory, boast, or rejoice in the English. Um, And in the Greek, those are all... They're all the same word as these other 
Corinthians, first and second Corinthians passages. Um, and I think that the cross references from these first Corinthians passages help us to understand what James is uh, talking about. In some cases, boasting is, is given as a negative, right? We're not to be prideful. Pride goeth before fall, right? But what, what do we boast in? Yes, 1 Corinthians one thirty one and 3.21 give a really good contrast of who we are to boast in um, and who we aren't to boast in. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let no one boast in men. And 2 Corinthians 10.17 follows that same pattern. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. We even sing a song that says, my only boast is you, right? All I have is Christ. When we sing that song, we say, my only boast is you. And that certainly is what he's, James is instructing them to do, boasting in the Lord. Referring to our borrowed boasts, <laughs> right? Our borrowed pride is the pride that we have in the Lord Jesus and all that he has done all that we would be unable to do and to glory in him and our position in him. So boasting um, should be in the Lord. What about exaltation? If you're poor, you're exalted. Hmm. That's, that's kind of tough to, to think about if you're poor, then think about, then boast in your exaltation. We've been studying through first and second Samuel. And one of the big themes throughout both of those two books in the Bible is that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, so when we look at our high position, this is a high position that's borrowed and only given to us via the Lord Jesus. High position in this particular form isn't used again, but it is related to um, hopsos, which is translated on high, right? When we see scriptures that say that he is seated on high, same word, Um we're to boast in our exaltation in God as being co-heirs with Jesus who sits in the throne room of God. So our only exaltation and the only exaltation that James would promote is the one that we're seated with in Christ. Right. So what about the rich? We have the instruction of the poor. And two, going back to the context, what do those of us that aren't wealthy, what do we have a temptation to do? We have a temptation to be jealous, to watch HGTV and somebody has three different swimming pools that they get put together in an afternoon and we, we want the same thing at our house. Um, 
to see someone driving around in the newest truck, sports car, um, you name it. The the poor and, and the working class, those of us that don't have a lot of wealth, have a temptation to be jealous of those that would have it. So think about James' instruction when he says, be perfect and complete, wanting nothing. Be content where the Lord has put you. Right? Be exalted only in your position in Christ. So James 1.10, let's look at what the rich are tasked with and what the rich may have as their particular challenge. So NASB says, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. ESV and KJV are very similar. Um, they, they do here say um, made low versus humiliation, but very similar language. And all talk about this flower of the grass. If you think about James and his use of analogies, here's another place where we see that James is using one of his analogies to describe the fleeting nature of riches and those things that we would build up for ourselves. It's a bit humiliating to be a rich person in James' church here. Remember, he had this merchant class in his church. Think about hearing this from your bishop. Think about hearing that all of that money that you have and all that money that you work every day to make all these trades and, and do all of this stuff and travel to all these places, it's going to evaporate. And if it doesn't, you're going to die and you can't use it where you're going. <laughs> and so there is, there is the instruction from James that the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. So where the poor man would have the struggle of wanting what he doesn't have, the rich man has the struggle of being too boastful and thinking that it all came from himself, not remembering what God has done in blessing him in his position. And perception is everything, right? Uh, if, if we talked to probably someone in Central America versus the way that all of us live and um, are able to support our families, we would look rich by comparison, right? We would look very wealthy. We have two cars, have a house to live in, got two dozen goats. <laughs> um, you know, that, that may look super wealthy from, from that perspective. And then, you know, from the other perspective, someone like Elon Musk would look at us and say, wow, like, that's what I make in two minutes, you know, your entire annual income. 
So it's all a matter of perception. And so the instructions to the poor and the rich both apply to us um, when, we, when we think in this way. So we, we have to identify that all that we have, number one, is from God. Whoa. And sorry about that presentation flip there. Um, forgive me. My computer decided to fast forward. <laughs> busting your humble circumstances. Yeah, I'm busting in my humble circumstances today. Um, so when we think about when we think about that picture of of the withering and the the basically passing away of this grass, let's look at another place, another time that we see a parable being taught by Jesus. James is a follower of Jesus and very influenced by Jesus' specific teachings. So Luke 12, 16 through 21, if you want to turn there, be my guest. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man is very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So the man who stores up treasure for himself, uh, so it is for the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Everything that we have, everything that the Lord has given to us is straight from him. All good things come from the Lord. We're going to see in James 117. Um, and notice that wealth is not the problem. Wealth in and of itself is not sinful. But it's what we do with our wealth. What do we do with what God has given to us? Even if it's little means. What do we do with it? Do we store all of this up for ourselves so that we can buy the nicest newfangled thing that's out there, whatever that might be? Or do we use it to provide for our families, provide for our church body, and honestly to glorify God? Um, all those means are given to us from him. So discretionally, it's not a bad thing to to have a retirement savings account. That's just wise, right? I don't think that the Lord would instruct us to be unwise about saving for our family and taking care of it uh, and honestly contributing to uh, our church family as well. But if we store these things up just to do as Luke, uh, as the book of Luke has, 
uh, where we just want to take it easy. Every day I want to retire. Every day I want to retire. I, I'm so completely jealous of those that, that can. Um, Lord, help me in my jealousy. But I would love to have a little bit more of an open schedule. Um, I would love to, to do exactly, forgive me, but what it says right here, to take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds like a good combo to me. But the Lord doesn't call us to comfort. The Lord calls us to serve him with everything that he gives to us. All right, let's read 111. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. You know, just kind of a depiction of that. I thought that this picture of sunflowers was a good one. You know, when you look out over a full field of sunflowers, it's just beautiful. There's all these big, big as a plate blooms and uh, bright yellow color. But then eventually these sunflowers wither and die. Um. You know, we've we've all probably lived in dry places. The driest place I've ever been is Texas in the summertime. If it doesn't have water on it, it is going to die. So there's a world of brown grass in Texas. If it doesn't have if it doesn't have a sprinkler on it, it is dead. And that's exactly that's exactly what this passage is referring to. That sun comes up. And it scorches all the field um, and it withers and dies. As I said, James harkens back to the Old Testament and uses the wisdom from the Old Testament in, in what he teaches as well. And there are several different verses that refer to this withering flower. So the flower that withers in Job 14:2, like a flower. He comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Psalm 103.15 says, For as for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. And Isaiah 46-7 says, A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. So if we haven't gotten it, what we need to know from this passage is that all those things that we get wrapped up in and perhaps get jealous of the, uh, the wealth that we would admire the ability and power of these wealthy men to be able to send rockets up to uh, Mars and uh, all of this different stuff that they're planning. It's all going to evaporate. Um, 
there was a man that Rita and I met years ago, and I'll never forget what he said because he was one of the plant bosses at a steel mill in Pittsburgh. And if you know anything about Pittsburgh, that was the seat of the steel industry for American steel. There were huge plants. And when you would go to Pittsburgh, the sky would be filled with smoke because there were all of these steel and annealing facilities all around the rivers there. And this man gave his entire life to that steel industry. He forewent time with his family. He worked 12-hour days. He stressed himself out to the nines, um, making sure that that steel plant operated and that it was profitable. And then he said something, then he said to us, that's all gone now. So his entire life, all that industry that he worked to uphold is just gone now. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Um, it's, it's just passing, it's fading. Another good cross-reference for us to see, if you will turn with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is hard to see on this slide. This is a, a long, long, so just practically, if you can turn with me to Ecclesiastes, and if you're singing the song in your head, so am I, so that's okay. <laughs> All right, if you have it. Ecclesiastes 2. 4 through 11, so chapter 2, 4 through 11. Solomon says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted them in all, uh, in all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had slaves born at home. I also possessed flocks and herds greater than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I also amassed for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of the sons of mankind, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not restrain my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. So I considered all my activities, which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was futility and striving after the wind, and there was no benefit under the sun. So Solomon is universally admired as the wisest man to have ever lived, and he did all of this. He built up what was the presence of Jerusalem. He, uh, the Lord used him to build the temple and he had all of these things. And probably it was something that was just a sight to behold, to be able to walk into Jerusalem and see the city 
that Solomon had built. And yet, it was all futility. That's what, that's what everything is without the Lord. It's all futility without him. So just to kind of recap, I think that there's a really good example or good examples of rich, righteous people, of rich, unrighteous people, uh, of poor, righteous people. And we see those throughout the scripture. So just to drive home the point that wealth is not in and of itself the bad thing. Um, you look at someone like Abraham, and in Genesis 13, 2, it says that Abraham amassed silver and gold. He was very wealthy, but we know him to be um, the father uh, of all of Israel. So, and, and of, of him being spoken that he was faithful. By contrast, if you go to Luke 16, uh, 19 through 31, this is no better contrast, um, no better contrast as a rich and poor situation than in Luke 16, 19 through 31. If you turn there with me. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them, so that they may not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So a really good, distinct contrast between Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man had all uh, all of 
of his goods in this life. He was dressed in fine clothes and had all of these possessions. And then Lazarus, meanwhile, sat outside his gate. And Lazarus, though, was faithful and joined um, Abraham um, with the Lord, whereas this rich man did not. So just wrapping it all up and putting all of this into our practice as we close this morning and as we go our separate ways, um, if we're to put this into practice as the poor and the instruction for us um, being poor, turn with me to Ephesians 1. 17 through 23, that should be very familiar to us because John is preaching on, uh, on Ephesians currently. But look at our position in Christ, and I want to encourage you with that this morning. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards all of us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in the age this age but also in the one to come and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all so if we were in a full gospel church, I would say, ain't God good <laughs> after that passage? But he definitely is. That's just awesome. Um, for us to meditate on and to think about God's position of where he has put, uh, put himself, put the person of Christ and who we are in Christ. So be encouraged today. And with that encouragement and with that meditation, let's not be jealous of what we don't have. Let's instead be thankful and content in what we do. Um, and secondly, if we could, would count ourselves wealthy, as I said, uh, you know, we would all be wealthy in the eyes of some. Um, you know, I, I look around the room. I see everybody probably ate this morning. And I think you all have places to live. And we all have vehicles to get us here. That's wealthy by some measurement. So if you look at James 1.17, the meditation for us and our wealth is to remember where all of these good things come from and, and be humiliated in that way, um, to be humbled in that way. 
Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So if you've got a car to drive to church, you've got clothes to wear, if your family plans on eating lunch today, all of these good things come from God. And he's provided you with all of those things. So let's let's be thankful and be content. Just to kind of summarize this, there's there's an old there's an old poem, um, "If" by Rudyard Kipling, and to me it sits in the back of my mind because my grandmother used to recite it to me. And one of the stanzas of it says, "If you can meet with triumph and disaster." and treat those two imposters just the same. Thinking about these two situations of of poverty and wealth and contrasting those, we we have to keep in our minds that those are passing situations. The foot is level at, uh, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Have you ever heard that? So we are all, we all have these experiences where we are leveling all these trials that might look a little bit different for us individually, but all of us have those trials that we're enduring through. All of us need that wisdom from God and all of us need to remember our position in him and where all good things come from. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word to us in James. Father, we pray that we would use, Lord, your messenger's words to remember to be thankful. And Lord, to remember in our wonderful position that we have only because of Christ. Father, we pray that we would meditate on these things this week. And Lord, apply it to our walk. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.